Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of On the Front Lines of Pennsylvania Politics, John Baer. John Baer, author of On the Front Lines of Pennsylvania Politics. If someone buys this book, what do they get? Um, they get, first of all, uh, Brian, a, uh, a wonderful gift idea for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, what they get, it's, it's, I've been working for the Philadelphia Daily News for 25 years. But I actually started in journalism in 1972 uh, with the Harrisburg Patriot. So what they get is uh, an irreverent, mostly chronological look at the politics of our state from Milton Shep uh, to Tom Corbett, literally to this year. And all of my favorite stories, uh, funny, sad, cruel, corrupt, uh, that happened during that time, along with the unending uh, you know, characters who have been central to the state's political history uh, for the last quarter century. So it's a fun read. It's an easy read. There are a lot of pictures uh, for people with uh, attention deficit disorder like myself. It's in, you know, it's cut up into small blocks. You don't have to do a lot of continuous reading. And there are some cartoons from my friend and the Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist from the Philadelphia Daily News, Signe Wilkinson. So there's a uh, a lot to commend it. Uh, how much of it is new writing and how much is old columns? Um, it's a mix. It's a mix of uh, text with the value of hindsight in kind of evaluating uh, what happened to the politics and the people in this state. And it includes excerpts, not whole columns, but excerpts of columns um, when I get to a particular point in our history where I had written something, uh, you know, about that. So I kind of set up, this is this is what was happening, and this is what I said at the time. And sometimes I come back and you know further explain you know what happened after that, and that's all that's all new text. Did you go back and read all your old columns to get ready for this book? Not all of them. Um, I went back. I fortunately kept an awful lot of stuff, uh, news clippings, not only my own but other journalists, um, on just about everybody who was significant in the in the state's political culture over that time. So I went back and looked at uh, what other people had written, what I had written, and, um, and found a lot of stuff that I'd forgotten about that really was pretty funny at the time or pretty significant at the time that, I mean, I can't tell you the number of people who follow politics regularly who have said to me, you know, I, I, I had completely forgotten about that aspect of the thing, which in some cases turned out to be a significant aspect in how things turned out in a particular campaign or a particular race. Did you spend a lot of time just sitting, staring at the wall, thinking? About no, not, no, not really, because it's um, uh, anybody who's done essentially the same job for a long period of time will have the same experience, which is it just seems to fly by, you know, because you're kind of um, at it every day or every week, and it, it kind of just flies. So, I mean, I did, I did remember a lot of things. And it didn't take much, the stuff that I've forgotten, it didn't take much to kind of jog the memory and bring me back to that time. So that was, a fun, that was actually a fun part of putting the book together. For people who are not familiar with your work, what is your beat right now? 
Um, it's an odd beat. Um, I was uh, hired as a political and government reporter for the Daily News based in the Capitol Newsroom in Harrisburg in 1987. Um, by 2000, I was asked if I'd like to be a columnist. I am the political columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News. But I have a lot of leeway, um, as does anyone who works for the Daily News. We're not what you'd call a traditional, you know, uh, uh, of the record newspaper. We kind of write about and cover the stuff that interests us and our readers. And so I do a combination of national, state, and sometimes local um, politics, covering local politics. But it's almost always political, the column. You twice get to a pick week. what you write about? Yes. Um, I have, I tell people, I have the best journalism job in Pennsylvania um, because I write two columns a week, which for many people is like being retired. Uh, <laughs> I, I have the same editor for 25 years, so we are almost symbiotic in, in kind of how we view the world. Um, it is frequent where we will go weeks without speaking um, because I will just send down a budget line that says this is what I'm writing about for Wednesday and it gets budgeted, I write it, it appears in the newspaper and online, and you know, end of story. Very few journalists have that kind of freedom and luxury. How do you pick what you write about and how how significant is it that it's something that you're interested in as opposed to something you think the public will be interested yeah, in? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I like to write off things that are happening. I like to write off of breaking news or current news. Uh, the joy of that is that it's, it's f almost always timely. The curse of that is that there will be days when I am expected to write, well, I will wake up and not have a, a clue uh, what I'm going to write about uh, because I rely on the news gods, and they so frequently deliver in this state that, <laughs> that it takes kind of the heat off. But there are some sort of, there's a, 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 an undefined list of subject areas that I return to. Uh, and they have to do with political accountability and political responsibility, um, use of tax dollars, judgments that are made uh, more in the sense of political protection than in public service. Uh, those kinds of things always draw me back. And characters. Um, I, I love to write about the what has been a blessing of uh, political characters in this state. And sadly, uh, so many have been taken away from me. Uh, you know, when you look at the list of people that were fun to cover and write about who are now otherwise occupied in state and federal facilities, um, or people who have left either by uh, term of office in the case of Ed Rendell, or uh, called to heaven in the case of Arlen Specter, although not everyone would agree with that placement. Uh, you know, I've just lost uh, so many of the really colorful, colorful characters in Pennsylvania. My hope is there'll be more to come. Do you ever feel like you're making progress? Like you have an effect? Sadly, no. Um, the, one, the one area that is enormously rewarding for anybody in journalism, um, and particularly for a columnist, because a column is kind of a little more personal. You know, it's like you're talking to readers rather than just reporting on stuff that happened. And there have been a number of occasions where people who have been dealt with horribly unfairly by the system um, that have come to me with their story, and I have written about their story, and they have gotten positive results. Um, and, and so you have, um, as a journalist, an occasional opportunities to impact positively individual lives. And that's a very powerful 
tool and a very rewarding thing to do. So in individual instances, yes, I feel like I have made some progress. In terms of the culture of the politics of the state, not so much. You get a lot of feedback on, from, from readers? Tons. Um, and, and that's always been fun. It, it is, um, you know, people who comment online, you know, that's the devil's work. Uh, anyone who's writing a column probably shouldn't read their comments online. Um, I don't, but I have friends who will excerpt some of the more colorful ones and send them along <laughs> to let me know <laughs> that I'm engaging individuals. But people who email me directly, and it's an interesting phenomenon. I think you and I may have talked about this before. People who email me directly are far less harsh and, and uh, more civil in their criticism. It's still, I mean, I get a lot of flack, I get a lot of criticism, but it's, it's far more civil if they think it's coming, if they know it's coming directly to me, rather than going on some anonymous list of 100 people who end up fighting with each other, rather than <laughs> arguing with me. And I really do try to answer individual emails. How often do you hear from people you have written about? Um, it depends. Um, there was a time when the phone at uh, my desk in the Capitol newsroom would ring and uh, the governor of Pennsylvania, Ed Rendell, would leave me a message. Uh, not always flattering, uh, not always civil. Uh, and uh, I mean, most, most of the pe people have said to me, am I in your book? And I said, most of the people that I like are not in my book. Uh, so, you know, you, you should feel blessed uh, that, that you're not. Uh, the, the, book, the book really saves no one. I mean, all are punished uh, in here. It doesn't matter party. It doesn't matter uh, persuasion. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I do hear from people uh, from time to time, sometimes positive, most times not. Are there times you, you start to write something and you think, you know, if I write that, this person, this governor, this senator, this elected official will never speak to me again. I'll never get anything out of them. And then you kind of hold it back, things you, you don't write about because you know you'll cut off your source? No. Um, there, there may have been times, there, there definitely were times when I have toned something down. Um, my editor, Gar Joseph, um, over the 25-year period that he's edited my work, has t both talked me off the ledge and onto the ledge. Um, you know, if I've written something that seems just over the top harsh, um, borderline cruel, he will say, there might be a better way to say this and have the same effect. Uh, and he's right. Uh, and, but there have been times when I will kind of back into something and he'll say, aren't you really more annoyed than that? And I will say, yeah. And he will say, well, you know, say that. Um, the best advice I ever got as a columnist, Brian, was uh, Zach Stahlberg, who wrote the foreword to the book, who was the Daily News editor who hired me and who named me as a columnist. Uh, he now runs the Committee of Seventy, a very uh, old and, and, and effective and well-known uh, good government group in Philadelphia. When I became a columnist, Zach said, um, don't worry about it. He said, it's not nobody's gonna die you know don't worry about being wrong uh, just write what you think and write what you feel and try to write the truth And that's great advice you know I think too many people particularly younger journalists when they get in you gotta trust yourself you gotta trust your instincts you gotta think the way a normal person feels a danger in covering politics is you get into the same milieu as the people that have power 
and you think you're part of it. You're not. You're there as a representative of people who have no power. Uh, and your job really is to be like them. Uh, how would an ordinary person look at this situation or look at this decision and try to write it that way? And that's what I've tried to do. Are there times when you went back and reread something and thought, oh, I wasn't really entirely fair with that person? There is. Uh, and I, I write about this in the book. <clears throat> and it was during the Casey years. And Governor Casey um, and Governor Florio of uh, New Jersey at the time had just raised taxes uh, to, uh, at the same time. And the Wall Street Journal excoriated them both as saying it was the worst financial decision made by any two states in America. And uh, it, it was a controversial move, and it, it, it sort of uh, suggested to me that I would do a comparative piece that went beyond sort of the governmental decisions and compare the two then-sitting governors, Governor Casey of Pennsylvania. And there were some similarities. Both had been athletes. Uh, Florio was a boxer. Governor Casey played basketball at Holy Cross with NBA Hall of Famer Bob Cousy. And, um, and both had been very popular, although Casey's popularity was falling because of the tax increase and Florio was seeking re-election. And their styles were very different. Florio was this very outgoing, robust-looking governor, and Casey, because he was ill, uh, looked horrible. He was, he was very thin, he was ashen. And I, I wrote a piece that compared them that was really pretty rough on, on very rough on Casey, and our art department did drawings of the two in which they looked like what I said. Florio looked very healthy and robust and in charge, and Casey looked almost pathetic. The reaction I got from the governor's senior staff um, was fast and furious. Uh, a letter to the editor uh, from his um, then press, press secretary, Vince Carucci, reminded people that I had worked for Lieutenant Governor Bill Scranton, who lost to Governor Casey, and said, essentially, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, that readers should know that John Bear worked for the man that Casey beat, and that should inform them on anything he says about Governor Casey. Um, the then uh, uh, chief counsel to the governor, Jim Haggerty from Scranton, wrote me a handwritten note that was one sentence, and all it said was, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Um, and in retrospect, I made peace, by the way, with all of these people, including the late governor. But in retrospect, they knew something I did not. They knew exactly how sick Governor Casey was. Had I known what they knew, uh, and, and, and their, their anger was really a reflection of their affection for and loyalty to Bob Casey, had I known what they knew, I would have softened the piece and, and maybe not have written it. Um, but I just didn't know at the time. So I don't regret writing it because journalistically I don't think it was unfair, but I regret not knowing more uh, at the time. So you worked for Bill Scranton yeah. Jr. For, in what capacity? He was uh, elected lieutenant governor in 1978. Um, at that time, I was working for public broadcasting then in Hershey, WITF, and also freelancing um, for, among others, Philadelphia Magazine and the Washington Post. 
Philly Magazine came to me and said, we'd like you to do a profile of this young Scranton who's running for lieutenant governor. And they sent me his bio, which was one page, and what leapt out was <clears throat> Yale, the Scranton name, uh, Transcendental Meditation, and Switzerland. And I thought, hmm. Uh, Philadelphia Magazine has always been a little snarky, and I thought I'd really have some fun with this. So I spent time uh, with Bill Scranton and found him totally engaging, very much at ease in his own skin, with his own wealth, and with his own, you know, with his family name. Very interested in public affairs and politics, and had some great ideas about what he'd like to do in, in Pennsylvania. And so I wrote the piece, and afterwards we stayed in touch. Um, and would talk on occasion about politics. He was a great source, very smart guy. And so when he decided to run for governor, which was probably when he was 12, when he, when he decided to run actually for governor, he called and said, you know, why don't you come and do this with me? And I was at a point in my life, this was like in 83, 84, I was ready to, to do something different. And so I did, went to work as his press secretary. Uh, and that campaign, and I, I write about that campaign in the book as well, um, was was fascinating because it was for a number of reasons. I mean, first you had um, in an older state, in a conservative state, you had this young guy who was not yet 40 uh, running for governor with a background of admitted recreational drug use, ongoing uh, practice of transcendental meditation, uh, and and a, a ton of money, uh, you know, personal personal wealth, against uh, Bob Casey who had by then three times lost Democratic primaries to run for governor, but had served uh, w with distinction as Auditor General, was a well-known name across the state, so you, and, and was older. So you had this kind of youth versus age, Republican versus Democrat. And Casey's campaign manager was James Carville. Uh, he had just come from Texas. He had never won a political race. Uh, he came with his partner, Paul Begala, and this was their first contest. And the first time I met James was, I think we were in Philadelphia negotiating the details of the gubernatorial debate. And James walks in, in, in his characteristic jeans and, you know, casual shirt and being James. And my first thought was, God, this guy, where's this guy from? You know, <laughs> with the, the raging Cajun, the accent and all that. Um, and so they won in a, in a very tight, and very contested race. The adrenaline of the last six weeks or so was enthralling. I mean, it was really fascinating to be a part of that. When the campaign started, everyone thought Bill was going to be the next governor. Um, he had uh, uh, gotten a ton of attention at the 1984 National Republican Convention in Dallas. Uh, U.S. News and World Report had named him one of the top ten rising stars of American politics. Uh, he had the name, he had the money, he had the looks, he had the, you know, the presence, and uh, everybody thought it was going to be a lock, um, and it, it didn't turn out that way. Did you believe in him when you were working for him? I did. I mean, I, I went with him not because I had a great deal of interest in being inside politics. I went with him because I, I really thought that he was somebody who could bring about the kind of changes that Pennsylvania politics needs to have. It would be like a fresh new start to um, the way we run our state. Remember, his father had served with, with uh, great distinction at a time when you could not run for re-election. When his father was governor, it was a single four-year term. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was a personal rather than a political decision uh, to go to work for him. So 
so you were in a position of fielding questions from people like you? Yeah, like me. What's that like? <laughs> uh, well, uh, after the fact, I, I made the, uh, the obvious decision that it's a, it's a heck of a lot easier to ask questions than to answer them. Uh, but I learned a lot about both the press uh, and politics. And um, one of the things I learned about politics is that policy isn't always formed in, uh, with the best intent. Um, and political appearances aren't always necessarily, uh, you know, for the benefit of the constituency. That politics is driven by the need to remain in politics, to stay in office, or to get in office. And the press, very often, all too often, um, is is pretty superficial. You know, it's kind of the, the easy, quick hit, um, the uh, issues that. In the, in the broader picture are not necessarily the kinds of issues we ought to be focused on get an awful lot more attention than they should. Um, so it, it made me, I think, um, number one, much more empathetic with people in public life because it's more than a notion to run for public office, particularly higher office in a state like Pennsylvania. I mean, it is emotionally, physically, psychologically draining uh, on, on the candidate on his family, on everybody around him. Uh, you're under a microscope. Uh, you're constantly fatigued. Uh, and you know, look, I understand nobody is forcing you to do that. But that doesn't mean that the toll doesn't exist. Uh, so anybody who goes into this, I do have an empathy for them that I never had before uh, working for Bill. Um, and on the other hand, I think it made me a better reporter because it not only exposed me to the inner workings and the people who work them, um, but it also gave me a sense of how can we do this better as, as journalists? How can we go beyond kind of the, the quick and easy, you know, soundbite or the quick and easy issue statement? You, you say in your book when you had your interview with um, Zach Stahlberg, who you refer to as your personal lord and savior, um, that um, you pushed the point that you were not ideological. Yeah. First of all, what does it mean? to you to be ideological, and how can you do what you do without being ideological? Well, I think being ideological means that you adhere to pretty solid uh, and, and firm principles when it comes to certain policy issues, you know, on, on what government ought to be, what government ought to do, what's government's role, stuff like that. The beliefs, the core beliefs of one party versus the core beliefs of another party. Um, I always th think, thought then and think now that Part of the problem in, in uh, mainstream journalism is the extremes of any issue get all the attention. And the truth, and probably where most people would want to be, is somewhere in between. So when I say I'm not ideological, first of all, that's how I would define ideology. And, and when I say I'm not ideological, that means that I really do think that that's where we ought to be. We ought to be somewhere uh, in the middle. So in trying to convince Stahlberg to hire me, and remember, in those days, I mean, this is in the mid-80s, there was not the back and forth between government and journalism that there is today. You mean people changing jobs yeah, from one to the other? Yeah, people from one to the other. I mean, it was really not done and was very much looked down upon. Um, and uh, we got a lot of criticism. Daily News got a lot of criticism for my hire. Uh, the Casey administration certainly was not interested in seeing me in that position. Um, and even in the newsroom at that time, I mean, I was not welcomed with open arms. You know, it took, it took a while. It took like a proving stage to say, you know, the initial, initial thing would be, oh, this guy's going to come in and savage Casey for everything he's ever done. And that was not 
that was not my intent. I just wanted to get back into journalism. And uh, the Daily News is a fun place to be, and Zach is crazy, so he hired me. <laughs> Do you remember the first column you wrote when you were back? Uh, well, the column wouldn't have come until uh, oh, later. Oh, you were a reporter yeah, in the beginning. Later, yeah. Although, now that you mention it, um, at the time that I was the I was the only person in Harrisburg for the Daily News. They used to have two people, but I was the only one in Harrisburg. And Dave Davies, who now works for uh, WHYY in Philadelphia, was covering city government for the Philadelphia Daily News. Dave and I have been friends for a generation. And uh, we convinced the editors to allow us to do a weekly analysis kind of column. Uh, Dave would do one week, I would do another week on a Monday. So, the, so and, and they, they went along with that, and we had fun with that. And I have to say, I mean, it's tough doing both. Uh, Brad Bumstead from the Pittsburgh Tribune Review now does both as a reporter and a columnist. I don't recommend it. It's tough because, it, you know, one can bump up against the other and people can question. But the very first column that I wrote under that scenario, which would technically be the first column, was going after then Supreme Court Justice Nix for all of the problems that were on his court. This was a time when and ironically, we're back there again, where individual justices were fighting with each other over issues that had nothing to do with the law. Uh, it was all kind of personal stuff, and the court was in a shambles. Um, there was an investigation of one of the justices. Uh, and so that was the first column. And the opening line of the column, which as it turned out, gave a hint of the kind of columnist I would ultimately be, was it was like a, it was written like a memo to Justice Nix, and the opening line was, uh, "Justice Nix, re your sorry assed court," uh, and then it went on from there. <laughs> so, thanks for reminding me of that. I'd forgotten <laughs> about that until you just said that. Um, you have early on in your book, you have a chapter that's headed with the question, "Why, uh, why we are the way we are?" For, what is the way we are, and why are we like that? The way we are is um, one of the least progressive political states in America. And the, the reason that's a tragedy is, is you have to think of our, in the historical context of our state, the birthplace of democracy, the place where the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights were signed, the cradle, the, the keystone among states. We ought to be the state that is the national model for good government and good civics, um, and we're certainly not. And uh, the reason that we're not, uh, as I talk about in the book, I think are three. Um, one is apathy. We consistently are below half the states or more in voter turnout, even in presidential years. Um, and the key to voter turnout, and a lot of people don't pay attention to this, is not registered voters. It's something called VAP, V-A-P, the voting age population. When you look at the voting age population of Pennsylvania versus that of other states, we're consistently well below, uh, again, half the states in terms of voter turnout. So our people, you know, most of our people just don't vote. So there's that, there's that apathy thing. Well, the percentage of people who vote versus voting age population. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, and the example that I give in the book is 1994, we had an open seat uh, governor's race. It was like a dozen people running for governor. And the, the menu was as varied as it could possibly be. I mean, there was a Jewish candidate, an African-American candidate, 
there were some insiders, some newcomers, some mavericks, a couple that just plain nuts, and you, you had a wide selection. And the turnout was 24%. Uh, and this is for governor. Uh, so, so apathy uh, is, is one of the reasons. The second reason is partisanship. We have been and are uh, an enormously partisan state. And partly it's because of apathy. And, and because we allow the partisanship, because of the apathy, the partisanship grows. And so when we get to issues like redistricting and they're controlled by the party in power, you get, uh, they use that power to sustain their partisan incumbency. Uh, and you see it every 10 years, you know, it just, it just happens that way. And the third reason is geography. Seven different media markets, many of them culturally different than uh, each other. Um, there's an example that I use that uh, in, in past campaigns, when you buy political campaign advertising, you buy what's called adjacencies to the most watched television programs in a given market. So in Philadelphia, for example, y you would buy in a statewide race, a you would put your TV ad before, during, and after news broadcasts. Um, in Johnstown, you would put your ad before, during, and after Wheel of Fortune. Um, and so, you know, you, you can immediately see the differences. But the other and probably larger problem is that different sections of the state have different priorities. Anytime people poll for constituent priorities in the Southwest, for example, it has to do with roads and bridges. Um, if you poll in the Southeast, it has to do with urban sprawl, uh, education, uh, sometimes crime. Uh, and so what happens is you have a state legislature come together representing these diverse interests that can't agree on commonwealth goods. So you get legislation, you get bills that might appeal you know, to people in Erie, that might appeal to people in Forest County, but that overall you can't get agreement because n nobody needs the same thing. In fact, everybody needs the same thing, which is better schools, a better education funding, more political reform, uh, more health care reform, more economic reform, more tax reform. But because everybody is so parochial in their approach to dealing with the needs of their constituents, we end up getting nothing done except those little slices. You, you say in your book here, and you're writing about the, I guess, the 2002 election when uh, Governor Rendell was elected, that um, Governor Rendell carried only 18 of the 67 counties. The vast middle, 49 counties, one could call Pennsylvania's psychological center, voted for Mike Fisher. Well, as a longtime observer of the legislature, I believe its soul and its core interests are a lot closer to Fisher's 49 than Ed's 18. Yeah. If, if enough of the population is in those other counties to swing the election <laughs> significantly for Ed Rendell, how come the core of the, uh, what is it, the soul and core interests are in the rural counties? Yeah, uh, election numbers and demographic numbers are different. I mean, Ed won by appealing to urban voters and suburban voters. Uh, Fisher carried the rural and, and a lot of other suburban voters. But when you get to legislating, the numbers kind of, you know, don't add up. All of the Philadelphia delegation could vote against something, but the vast middle would have more representatives just because of the size, not because of the number of people. Um, there, are, there are more representatives from rural areas than there are from 
urban areas. And so the power doesn't match the elective power, you know, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So that's why uh, when Rendell comes into office after running a, a great campaign and spending a still standing record of $42 million, um, he has these ideas that tend to be very popular in urban areas, having to do with increased education, uh, having to do with gun control. I mean, this is somebody who you know, advocates gay rights, uh, is pro-choice on abortion, but the representatives from the rest of the state are not there. So in, in, in areas of social justice, uh, in areas of political reform, um, merit selection of judges is a good example. He couldn't get any of that passed. And he only got education because he is smart and compromised and traded stuff off. Um, and so he, he was able to, to get education. Plus, education really does affect everybody. You know, you, you can be against giving more money to Philadelphia school district, but if the governor says, look, this is going to mean more money for, you know, Susquehanna County School District, too. So that was a little bit easier than to getting any of the social agenda through that he would like to have had. Can you talk a little bit about the, you write for a Philadelphia newspaper. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Philadelphia and Pennsylvania? And do you have a hard time writing for a Philadelphia newspaper to get your readers to care about what's going on in Harrisburg? Yes. Um, Philadelphia is very mayoral centric. Um, and, and national news is right there. State news is so removed from Philadelphia and Philadelphians um, that it's very tough to get people interested in, in state government. And um, I've always said that I could probably go to any editor uh, in the Inquirer or the Daily News and say, name five of the 30-so uh, state representatives from Philadelphia, and they wouldn't be able to because those people are never in the news until or unless they do something outrageous or wrong or illegal. Um, we don't cover them. Um, as, as a result, they keep getting reelected many times without opposition in primary or general elections. Uh, and look, those are our tax dollars at work. They're making decisions that affect the whole Commonwealth. Uh, it's an enormous expense of tax dollars to feed and maintain them. And the decisions they make also cost them an awful lot of money and support. Philadelphia gets a, a big share of state spending uh, for education, for homeless programs, for drug programs, for social services, for welfare. And, and yet it rarely, the, the media there just rarely does not focus on uh, state issues until or unless there's a problem. I've always said, Brian, and I'm sure you've heard me say this, that if, if the capital of Pennsylvania was in Philadelphia, we'd be a far more progressive state because it then would get the kind of hardcore attention that state government ought to get. State government is an enormous force uh, in the daily lives of, in our case, 12 million people. Uh, and it just doesn't get the attention. And I think a large reason of that is because it's located in a minor media market. Are there times when you see the, the legislature or the state government sticking it to Philadelphia because they just don't like them? Consistently, uh, yeah. Um, there is a widespread view once you get outside of City Line Avenue, maybe just a little bit further, that it's a sinkhole, that it's corrupt, that it, you know, it just takes all of our money and, and passes it out to their friends or gives the sweetheart contracts or can't educate children, can't run welfare programs, can't do anything right, and we ought to find a way to either have them secede to New Jersey or just cut off their funding. Yeah, it is very difficult to get um, anything past the legislature uh, that, that truly benefits Philadelphia because there's this, there's this attitude. 
Well, does Philadelphia have that kind of disdain for Harrisburg yes. or for the rest of the state? Yes. They do. It does. Um, the, just in my own experience, people who, who, people who view Harrisburg like, you know, like they would view, I don't know, West Virginia or something, you know, it's a, it's a completely different geographic, demographic, uh, and cultural center. I mean, when, I'm sure Eddie, uh, when he came to office here, was just stunned uh, to be away from pro sports teams and his favorite restaurants and, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it is totally different. And uh, people don't take that into consideration when they think about the why there's this disconnect between state government and Philadelphia. Completely different places. If you were talking to somebody who had no exposure to how state government works in Harrisburg and you wanted to tell them a story that sort of captures the, the legislature, the, the governor of Harrisburg, state government in a nutshell, can you come up with one? Hmm. Yeah, I probably can. Um, the, the legislature, the way the system is set up, the legislature can literally do anything it wants. Uh, there are rules about when you can pass legislation, and there are constitutional requirements on how you pass legislation. And so if they really want something done in a hurry, what they will do is every bill gets a number. So you number a bill and say you want this specific program passed, and you pass it in one chamber. It goes to the other chamber and sits, maybe for months, maybe for a year. Somebody wants something, and so they take that bill, gut it, put something else in, and say it's already passed the House. Not the content, but the number. And then they'll send it back to the House. And you're supposed to entertain legislation for three days before you finally pass it. Constitution says that very plainly. Um, House rules say you have the, these waiting periods and all of this. Well, then the leaders will get up and say, propose a motion to suspend the rules. The rules get suspended. The bill that had nothing to do with the final content comes back with the same number, gets passed, and gets put into law. Then somebody sues, whoever is affected or objected to the, to the bill, and it goes to the, to the court system. The court system is funded by the legislature. So anything the legislature wants that the court gets, there might be a little bit of tendency for the court to support legislative action. And you know, the result is if, if, if you know how the system works and you have the power to push the buttons, you can get just about anything you want. Um, the pay raise in 2005 is a good example. The courts. The, the legislature eventually repealed it, but the courts cited the Constitution saying, look, the Constitution says you cannot reduce the compensation of a judge. And since the legislature had already increased it, then, the, court, then the, the Supreme Court said, well, okay, your raise is gone, but ours, yeah, got to keep it. Pennsylvania elects its judges. At every level. Um, is that unusual among the states? There's only a handful, five, six other states that do it. And uh, it's been a constant struggle to try to change. And we've certainly had experience uh, in this state that would recommend it. Um, you go back to the Supreme Court Justice Rolf Larson, who became the first justice since before the Civil War to be impeached. I have to interrupt you right there just yep. to read this one part of your book, you say, Rolf Larson, his business card was made of supple gold embossed black leather. Don't believe it? Check with me. I still have one. I still have one. Yeah. 
very black leather business card. Very supple, very soft, with gold embossing. You know, only the best. Um, they the at at that time, and they probably still do. Anytime the Supreme Court was meeting in Philadelphia, justices would stay at the Four Seasons because it's the most expensive hotel in Philadelphia. Um, but uh, Luzerne County case, uh, the two judges in the Kids for Cash scandal, uh, elected judges. Um, we have judges in Philadelphia right now uh, under investigation uh, in traffic court, uh, elected judges. And there is, a, I think, a very sound argument for, because of our campaign finance laws, uh, when you run for judge, who's going to contribute to a judicial candidate? Uh, lawyers are. Lawyers and law firms. The very people who will be then practicing before the judge or justice. So if, if you're an average Joe who ends up in front of a judge, you have to be asking yourself, <laughs> did the other guy's lawyer contribute more than my lawyer? To, you know, and it, it sort of questions the whole system of justice. Um, now, there are great judges in our state, but th there's over a thousand of them. Um, and you just got to think that even for the appearance, uh, it, it would be better off if they were appointed rather than elected. Th the great judge I immediately thought of was John uh, Cleland, who, who was the judge who not only ran the Interbrands Commission investigating the Luzerne County case, but also very deftly handled the Jerry Sandusky trial, um, and he's a, a, a senior judge from McCain County, you know, in the middle in the middle of nowhere. He also, fortunately or not fortunately, looks the part. I mean, he looks like he's from Central Casting, tall, thin, gray hair. Among all the people you've covered over the years, who are the funnest people to cover? Rendell and Specter, um, without question. There, any journalist who has spent time campaigning with either. Uh, will tell you that it's a, it's like going to the amusement park for the day. Uh, they were both just a delight to be with. And people sometimes are surprised when I say Specter because they know him as Snarlin' Arlen and you know the meanest man in Washington and, and stuff like that. But even before you know the end of his career, he started doing some comedy and some stand-up stuff. Long before that, um, he was known uh, among people who covered him and among people who know him for this enormously funny sense of humor and wry sense of humor and cutthroat sense of humor. Uh, it was just a very funny guy. And both of them um, are, are so smart and on policy, on politics, that any time you had an opportunity to just talk with them about stuff, you'd always learn something. You'd always get another insight. Um, and, you know, and at the time, Arlen was Republican and he was a Democrat. And they're very different people. I mean, they're, you know, nothing like each other. But in a lot of ways, they're very, very similar uh, in, in, in two key measures that are the reasons for their success. One is they were enormously intelligent and two, willing to do anything to win and stay in office. Uh, great fundraisers, great campaigners, great political tacticians. And so, I mean, I learned an awful lot about politics by staying close to those two and, and covering their campaigns and their times in office. Did you, did you get to spend much one-on-one -on -one time with them? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's another thing. That's a great point. 
they were the most accessible of politicians that I've ever covered. I mean, they were always available. Um, they always allowed you to have access. They always allowed you to have one-on-one -on -one access. And there, you, you couldn't, I, tr I spent decades trying to stump Spectre on anything. And it just couldn't be done. I mean, he was so facile and so, <laughs> you know, so agile with the language and with the law. Uh, and, and Eddie, of course, is just unpredictable and crazy and, you know. Um, but politicians aren't like that anymore. You don't get that same level of first intellect uh, and second levity and third access. I mean, Arlen used to go to every county, 67 counties, every year, election year or not, and hold town meetings. He was out there all the time. If you didn't have a chance to talk to, criticize, or yell at your United States Senator, it was your fault. Um, and they're, they're just not like that anymore. I mean, they're so buttoned up, everything is controlled, everything is scripted, uh, and it's just a different kind of feel. Uh, so th th because of that, they were just a joy to cover. Did you see them acting differently around you if you were with them one-on-one -on -one and nobody else was around than if they were talking to other people? Um, not really. I mean, they'd be a little bit looser. Um, you know, Arlen had a reputation in Washington. I mean, the Washington Magazine, Washingtonian Magazine, routinely would name him, you know, the meanest boss in, on Capitol Hill. And he did have a lot of staff turnover. And it's easy to believe, you know, spending time around him. But I never saw that side of him. I never saw him treat anyone badly um, or snap at anybody. But I know he did, just from stories that you hear. And they all do. I mean, Eddie's the same way. Eddie would throw fits. But in Eddie's case, he would forget he'd be mad at you. You know, he was enormously loyal to uh, the people around him, sometimes to a fault. Uh, and he'd forget he'd be mad at me. He'd, he'd criticize something that I wrote, and then he'd see me in the hallway. Hey, John, how you doing? I mean, he'd just, you know, forget. But no, I mean, largely, they were pretty much the same uh, around, around journalists than they were around people. How was Bob Casey to be around? Um, totally different. Um, he, uh, I, I say in the book that at the end of his career, after he had left the governor's office, he and I had lunch on his 65th birthday uh, in Scranton. This is, he had been out of office, I guess, a couple of years. And <laughs> it was unusual because at the time, I mean, everybody thought, he'd, A, he'd be dead by then. Uh, B, why would he have lunch with me? I mean, I was a person that tortured him for his, for his eight years in office and had run against him, uh, worked on the campaign to run against him. Um, but he was very gracious, and we had an informal talk about family and politics, and we had a, a little bit more formal talk about what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. And um, he, I grew to admire him tremendously for not so much his politics, but just his character and his determination. Um, talk about a survivor. I mean, there's a guy who just kept going and was unshakable in his core beliefs. And you don't find that too much in, in successful politicians. You know, they tend to kind of give a little here, give a little there. But I said the luncheon was unusual because for the last, for the decade prior to that, the only conversations I ever had with Bob Casey were short clipped sentences through a furrowed brow, you know, because he was just, he was that always that P.O. dark Irish, you know, kind of stern master. You, you tell the story about when uh, he was riding with a former aide, Pat Boyles. Yeah. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah. 
Uh, Pat confirmed this for me. They talked about Casey was sometimes intimidating to be around by by staffers because he was no nonsense. I mean, there wasn't going to be any joke telling or anything like that. And they had been. I think he was speaking. He might have been the commencement speaker at Bloomsburg or something. And they were out coming back from that, headed back to Scranton. And Casey's sitting in the car reading the newspaper, and Pat's in the back seat. And just to break the frozen air, Pat says something like, boy, there sure are a lot of out-of-state plates on this on this road. Casey, without looking up or looking over, says, oh, that's why they call it an interstate. <laughs> and that was the end of any conversations. You know? quote Boyles as saying, he certainly was intense. <laughs> yes, he certainly was. You also say he had a quick trigger temper. Yeah, yeah. He would go um, at, at a news conference it didn't take much to get him going. I mean, he would, he would start to answer a question, and then it would lapse into, I'm a fighter, I'm the toughest cat in town, they don't know who they're dealing with, you know, this is skunk juice. Uh, I mean, he just had, uh, it was very, a very short fuse. We could probably, probably spend the rest of the interview where I just throw out names and you talk about people, but let's, let's start with one, Vince Fumo. Yeah. Um, a remarkable person, uh, just so unusual. This is a guy who is a member of Mensa, um, who owned a bank, uh, who was a licensed plumber, a licensed pilot, a licensed electrician, um, a lawyer uh, with an MBA, and uh, again, uh, just extremely unusual and had this South Philadelphia air and presence about him. Uh, just a mix of almost uh, everything. Uh, we always referred to him as Octovince because he had his hands or tentacles in literally every aspect of Philadelphia. Culture, the arts, um, healthcare, the ports, transportation, <laughs> politics, elections, uh, everything. And um, I never thought that he would be successfully indicted because he had been indicted very early in his career and was paranoid about the federal government. He had his office bugged uh, as a state senator. Um, he was always looking over his shoulder. He had narrowly escaped conviction the first time out. And I believed that he was just A, too smart, and be too paranoid to get caught again. Uh, and yet, all of those years of power just reinforced the human nature that we keep hearing about, about what power does to people. And he clearly abused it. Um, his argument would be the greater good, that he brought billions of dollars to his city and his constituency, did tons of good things for the neighborhoods there, for the city, for the schools. How was he able to do that when he was in the minority party, sometimes like 30 to 20, the distant minority Just party? Just the, the force of his, his personal uh, uh, commitment to getting things done. I mean, they, his staff had t-shirts that said, can I say this on the air? Sure. Uh, we get shit done. That was their motto. Uh, and um, that's how they operated, and he was able to get things done, and people knew it, and he was so well-connected. I mean, in, in the judiciary, in the executive branch, everywhere you went, he had colleagues, friends, and allies who at some point or another, uh, he had helped. And um, I'll, I'll give you an example that is, that is both instructive and, and journalistically interesting. When he was in the State Senate, 
my older son was playing college basketball, blew out his ACL. And we had enormous problems with health insurance in settling all of these bills and surgery and rehab and all of that. In a casual conversation, I mentioned this to Vince. The next day, the late Fred DeBono, who was the head of Independence Blue Cross in Philadelphia, personally calls me and says, send me everything and I'll fix it. And I said, Fred, I can't do that. I said, it's a, this is a guy I cover. I said, I can't do a favor. For, but the point being that, and I, and I didn't. I mean, we ultimately fixed it. The point being that, like that, I mean, he is able to reach the then top executive of Independence Blue Cross and get something resolved. And he did that for anybody that he met who he thought could help him. You know, now I'm sure in the back of his mind he thinks, if I do this for Bear, Bear will some point go easier on me. You know, and you just can't, as a journalist, you can't let that happen. And um, uh, as a journalist, I wouldn't let that happen. But it's an example of how he operated, uh, which was top to bottom all the time. Were there other people like that who really knew how to use political power? How to sure, accumulate? yeah, yeah. Jim Mandarino, uh, the late, uh, the late great, uh, you know, Democrat from Manesson. Uh, was like that, uh, was able to get things done. And uh, it, I mean, it was a different, it was a different era then. I mean, leaders really did control everything. Now it's not quite the same. I mean, they still have enormous power. But yeah, there are other people like that, just very few, very few, and, and decreasingly so. Another name to throw out, uh, Rick Santorum. Yeah, uh, Rick, <laughs> Rick and I go way back. Um, there's a, a reference in the book to the uh, Bob Dole uh, convention in San Diego. Um, and Rick was then a freshman senator. And we were off the floor of uh, the convention hall as Dole is accepting the nomination. And uh, Rick is criticizing Dole as saying that this is not somebody who is going to adhere to the core principles of our party. And when I look back at the interview that I did and the things he said then, it's almost verbatim what he said um, 16 years later in uh, 2012 when he was running for, or 2012 when he was running for president. Uh, so at, at least he's been consistent. Um, but my criticism of him has always been that he is enormously divisive and enormously intolerant. And I'm not sure that that makes for a good leader. Uh, it makes for good debater, it makes for good television appearances, it makes for a good vote getter in red states, but in terms of leadership, um, I don't think that's the way America wants to go. Tom Corbett. The anti-Ed. Um, uh, Tom Corbett is uh, everything that Ed Rendell isn't. Um, he, Tom Corbett is not a policy wonk, Tom Corbett is not a gladhander. Uh, in a very strict sense, he's not a politician. I mean, his whole career was spent as a prosecutor, except for a time in private practice when he was a, a, a counsel for waste management. Um, but the first time I interviewed Tom Corbett was in 1995. He had been appointed attorney general after Ernie Preet went to jail um, by Governor Tom Ridge. And I went into the attorney general's office, just the two of us, and sitting on a credenza beside his desk, is a little old school metal lunchbox with those little plastic handles on them. And it's Tom Corbett Space Cadet. Because in the 1950s, there was a 
cartoon character, comic book character named Tom Corbett Space Cadet. So I look at this, and I look at him, and I say, you really think it's a good idea to, as a politician, as a public office holder, align yourself with the name Space Cadet? And he just kind of laughed, and that was the end of it. Well, fast forward to the year he's running for governor, um, and the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act has just been passed. And he is running in a state that absolutely has to have moderate suburban voters for a Republican to win. That's how a Republican wins. You get moderate sub Republican suburban voters and some independents. He joins with a handful of other 10 or 11 other Republican attorneys general and sues on the constitutionality of the, of the Affordable Care Act. And so I raised the question in a column of politically, I mean, is it Tom Corbett's space cadet? I mean, what's, what's he doing? So he sees me shortly after that and says, just walks up and kind of leans in and says, I knew you'd be the one that would bring that up. I said, dude, I gave you fair warning. You know? so. After, you, you talk about, tw your book is 25 years of Keystone reporting, but you talked about how you were reporting before that yeah, for, the, yeah. for the Patriot. After all this time, and you said you, you just feel like you're not necessarily moving the ball very much. You're changing things. What keeps you going? What keeps you interested? What keeps I you mean, engaged? it's just it's just entertaining. Um, it is. I, it's anybody who's been in journalism knows two things. Every day can bring something new and exciting. You never know what's going to happen. You can suddenly be thrust into the middle of a great story. Um, so that keeps you going. Uh, you have occasionally, as I mentioned earlier, the opportunity to help individual individuals better their lives. That keeps you going. Uh, but just the joy of being kind of on the front lines of history. I mean, I've gotten to do things that an insurance agent, for example, uh, or most lawyers would never get to do. Uh, sat in the press gallery uh, during the impeachment of Bill Clinton, uh, witnessed the last execution uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, those sorts of things provide a kind of, you know, shot in the arm uh, for a job that um, is like no other. And so that keeps me going. I wish we had more time to talk, but we're out of time. We've been speaking with John Baer. He is a Philadelphia Daily News columnist and the author of this book on the front lines of Pennsylvania politics. John Baer, thank you very much. Brian, thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.